It was the carpenter comment that was supposed to leave a mark. Up until that point, Jesus has, in the words of Mark, astounded his listeners in his hometown, in his hometown synagogue. They ask in a kind of awe, where did he get all this wisdom and look at all of these deeds of power being done by his hands? But then in the middle of this litany of astonishment, something turns. Is this not the carpenter? They know his family. Heck, his sisters are in the crowd even then. It's as if they are perplexed that this kind of extraordinary power could come from the hometown boy. Now, you remember in Luke's gospel, when Jesus preaches in his hometown, they take him to the edge of a cliff, meaning to throw him off of it. Here, there's not any violence or the threat of violence. There's just offense, just derision and a little bit of snobbery. He's just a carpenter. Nothing to see here. And that leaves Jesus as the one who, by the end of the the interaction, is astonished. He marvels at their unbelief. No matter how insightful his teaching, no no matter how profound his wisdom, no matter how remarkable his deeds of power, they cannot get past his ordinariness. You know, the American Revolution was referred to by a few people as the Presbyterian Rebellion. You know that, right? It was not a compliment. In fact, it was King George who came up with the epithet. American Presbyterian pastors almost uniformly advocated for revolution, pitting them against their Anglican colleagues who largely urged fidelity to the crown. That's why we're so glad that Michael saw the error of his ways. There was only one clergy person who signed the Declaration of Independence, a Presbyterian minister named John Witherspoon. We hold these truths to be self-evident, said Witherspoon and the other signers on July the 4th, 1776. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed with certain Writes and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know, of course, that it has taken centuries for us to live into the promises of those words, that many of those signers enslaved other human beings, that non-propertied men and all women and various other groups were not deemed worthy to vote. But because we were and are a country founded on the ideals expressed in the Declaration, we have tried in each generation to live up to them. Why did King George name this the Presbyterian Rebellion? It could have been because the contours of the emerging government looked a lot like a Presbyterian 
church with power delegated to groups and not individuals with the absence of bishops and popes with all of those committees even then with a representative form of government. Or it could be because the Scots were such a big part of the church in those days with their famous willingness to fight for freedom. Or maybe it was the French connection that stretched back to John Calvin and would evoke a similar rebellion in France not much later with the tagline, liberty, fraternity, equality. In the end, I suspect, though, that the biggest reason King George was so dismissive of the Presbyterians was because they were so ordinary. They represented the folk who made up the patriot movement. They worked their farms. They ran their businesses. They taught in schools. They were were civic-minded. They went to church every Sunday to hear their highly educated pastors talk about liberty. These are not not the sorts of people who foment revolution. King George must have have thought, and he thought this one would be short-lived because of it. We're not told in our reading today much about the content of Jesus' teaching, only the reaction to it by the people who heard it. We're told they were astounded. They wonder who it was that had given him such wisdom in this little podunk town in Galilee. They marvel that deeds of power are being done by his hands. The rest of Mark's gospel gives us an idea, though, of what he was saying and what he was doing. We know that he's drawing enormous crowds everywhere he goes, that his message of God's realm is resonating with those who are usually on the fringes, that he stops and tends to synagogue leaders and sick women on the street, that healing and wholeness are present everywhere he goes, and that his message of God's love for all people is taking root. Theologian Douglas John Hall writes that Jesus' presence always elicits the question of identity. He raises in the minds of all he encounters an attention that is more than curiosity. It is rightly described, he says, as existential, for it's always a matter of deep personal concern whether enemy or friend, whether scoffer or disciple, betrayer or family member, they are all intensely involved with Jesus. An expectancy, perhaps a hope, is felt in His presence. Though for some, chiefly those who are in power, the expectancy always has a negative connotation because hope for the deliverance of some must always mean the accusation and dethronement of others. In other words, Jesus' presence is revolutionary. He was, after all, executed on a Roman cross for sedition. 
And yet his hometown detractors were right about one thing. He was a carpenter from backwater Galilee. And that alone is revolution enough that Mary's boy would lead a rebellion that continues to topple principalities and powers in the name of radical love. I remember the day our daughter, in researching her name, Chandler, discovered that Chandler means candle maker. And that news landed with a thud on her lap. Her sibling, after all, is named Samuel Caleb, two biblical names that belied faith and courage. Her name was just ordinary. Back in the day, a candle maker would be like a light bulb manufacturer today, necessary, but not exotic and oh so ordinary. It didn't help that she had also discovered at the same time the provenance of her surname. A joiner is a carpentry term. It describes a person who specializes in building things that require the joining together of two pieces of wood. I joked that maybe we could open a store. We could call it Candlewood. We could sell scented candles encased in joined wood stands. It did not help. I guess really, in the end, all I can say to her is that sometimes the most extraordinary things come from ordinary people. That it was the likes of carpenters and candle makers that followed Jesus so long ago because they heard in his voice, the carpenter's voice, an extraordinary word of welcome, liberation, redemption, A word that said they were God's children, that they were included in the realm of God, that they counted. And it was the likes of carpenters and candle makers that said enough to the king, even to the notion of kings, and declared that all persons are created equal, endowed with certain unalienable rights, not given by any king or any government, but by God. And it was the likes of carpenters and candle makers that held aloft these words of liberty and called us to recognize that enslaved persons were part of that promise, that black and brown people and women and prisoners and immigrants and LGBTQ persons, that the all in the declaration does indeed mean all. And so here we stand. In 2021, the next generation of the Carpenters' Rebellion, worshiping in one of those Presbyterian churches that King George derided so long ago, but we're still here and he's not. With outstretched arms, we continue to say, all are welcome at the table of the Lord. All are welcome to join in the revolution. Amen.